Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hello and welcome back, friends. This is the episode recap and fact check for episode four of the Star's original series, Becoming Elizabeth. I'm Christine Morgan, and I want to say a huge thank you to all of you who shared your questions, told me what you're enjoying, and even what you're not really vibing with. Uh, I think we found a really great online community, and I love talking with all of you every week. To start off, Um, I had some thoughts rolling around in my head all week, and so I did a little more digging about Jane Grey's family life, sort of as a piggyback off seeing her punished last week. Um, And I have a little more info about this family as it relates to the show. And I want to thank listener Marie for bringing up a question about Jane Grey's mother, Frances Brandon. Because this character has not yet appeared in our story, though I'm not entirely sure why. And I'm going to hazard a guess here, which may or may not satisfy this question. But I think that when it comes to Frances Brandon, she is a character that would only serve to complicate. She doesn't occupy the same spaces as her husband, Henry Gray, and therefore her overlap in story relevance may just be too low. They'd need all new locations and a whole new set of characters to go with her. Um, And so I call this the Disney effect, where uh, giving the main character two parents is deemed to be too much for children to follow. Right. So um, Francis Brandon, for those of you who do not know, was Henry VIII's niece. Her mother was Queen Mary Tudor, the king's sister, and her father was Charles Brandon. So knowing that Francis Brandon is a descendant of the Tudor royal family, you may be asking, but Christine, why wouldn't Francis be in line of succession Before her daughter, Jane. And this is a fantastic question. Thank you for bringing it up. The long story short is that Henry VIII's last will and testament laid out all his possible successors. And his sister Mary's line, which then included Francis, was essentially disinvited from the crown party. So in Henry's lifetime... He passed uh, three acts of succession, with the third being his last, and it detailed that his son Edward was to succeed him, followed by the re-inclusion of Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth, and this act was passed in 1543. Then, in 1547, the year of Henry's death, the Treason Act was passed, which made it an act of treason for anyone to step in and sort of interrupt the order that Henry laid out. 
So Francis couldn't step in, but Jane could have married in, and that would have been acceptable. So spoiler, that is not how this is going to play out. Uh, And that is why what happens to Jane is what happens. And so it's a combo of the 1543 Act of Succession and the rule of law established by the 1547 Act of Treason. So... For our story's sake, Francis Brandon may not make an appearance, but we've been surprised and delighted before, so let's not rule her out entirely. But now, to get back into our main story, this episode opens and we find Elizabeth not back at Hatfield House, but at Chessent Manor, or now called Chessent Great House, and that's about an hour northwest of Hampton Court, maybe 30 minutes from London Center. So it's not too far removed from Central Court. Um, Obviously, maybe the times may vary. I just sort of like figured what that distance is now. So maybe double it for riding a horse or something like that. Uh, But it's close. We see that she's actually staying with Kat Ashley's sister, and brother-in-law, Joan and Anthony Denny. And after a while, Anthony reveals that he held Henry VIII's hand as he died. And this is maybe likely. Anthony Denny served as a groom of the stool for Henry VIII in his final years. Um, Not going to lie, that is a task I would not like to have had. Uh, But this role, we have to remember, is the highest ranking position in the Privy Council. So I guess I shouldn't knock it uh, until I try it. Uh, But just as a refresher, the Privy Council is the structure that attends to the king's body. So Anthony Denny was really powerful and really well connected. He very well could have inherited the great house because he did receive several manors from Henry and some that came to the crown because of the dissolution of the monasteries. Also, by this point of the story, 1548, he was basically in charge or about to become in charge of Westminster Palace. So this guy is well off and very well respected. And his wife, Joan, is Cat's sister and a friend of Catherine Parr, and she's also part of this Protestant faction that is forming. Uh, Now, technically, I don't think it's been proven that Kat, Ashley, and Joan Denny were sisters, but it is a likely relationship. So I do have to kind of throw that disclaimer in there. And then from their conversations, we learn Catherine Parr is not feeling well with her pregnancy and Maybe that's why she's not writing to Elizabeth, even though Elizabeth has been begging her for forgiveness. And um, listener Laura pointed out that she was surprised that Elizabeth wrote to Catherine, but not to Thomas, and suggested maybe that avoiding correspondence with him was a sign of Elizabeth's growth. And I think this is a really good read. Um, Elizabeth's choice to prioritize reconciliation with Catherine over prolonging her affair with Thomas is um, definitely like character development. I will add, though, in real life, had Elizabeth or Thomas 
written about their feelings or about what may or may not have transpired. I mean, that would just be the fastest ticket you ever saw to execution block. Um, Best not to put treason on paper, babes, as I always say. Um, If you think you'll die because of it, keep it close to the chest. We don't have to share all of our secrets, okay? Word to the wise. Um, So... This whole scenario is also where we learn Elizabeth is late on her cycle. And of course, we get sent down this whole spiral. Is she pregnant? Is she not? Um, And I'll admit, at first, I was really upset thinking they were going to explore the secret pregnancy line. Uh, But thankfully, they did not. Uh, Even Kat says Elizabeth is often dysregulated, which at 15 makes sense. And this is also where I see a lot of relatability coming into the writing of Elizabeth. You know, she has this dread, this, this worry over what's happening to her, to her body, to her um, power and authority. Can she control it? And then She does ask if she needs to send for a woman, presumably to end a pregnancy. Now, this is another trope that stars series often use, and I I don't really understand it. I have to admit it. This use of pregnancy or scandalous pregnancy and how to end it is in like every series, um... But rarely does it actually affect the story. It's just something that gets thrown in for tension, for story uh, clout. I don't really get it. Um, I think maybe you all as well felt a little sensitive to this trope this past week. Unfortunately for stars, I think this was really bad timing. And at this point, I'm sort of like, why? The story is interesting enough without the tragedy or the story tropes. And I know that some of you feel that, too, because sometimes it's not as fun when life imitates art or vice versa. Also, Princess Mary Tudor arrives unannounced at Chesant Manor. She's come from Framlingham because it seems she has also heard some of these rumors that are swirling about Elizabeth. And so she wants to warn her about what's being said, only for Elizabeth to basically turn around and confirm the rumors are true. So this is where I wish Stars sort of took a page from Bridgerton and had some really great, like, early modern rendition of, like, Lizzo's rumors, just like, you know, oh, the rumors are true. Yeah, like that would have been really fun here. Anyway, but they are playing with music. I don't know if anyone else noticed, but when Mary arrives, she's got this really funky underscored music that feels modern, but is played on traditional instruments. But it's not a pop song. It's just sort sort of scored. And it's a departure from the norm. Uh, I liked it. But back to the story, Mary begs Elizabeth not to say the truth out loud to her because Mary admits she won't hesitate to use it as a weapon in the struggle for power if needed. I love the way their interactions are written. Every time they have scenes together, 
Um, the writing is strong. The acting is strong. These have been really fun. So moving on, we come to understand King Edward's plan is to continue his father's dissolution of monasteries. And we're introduced to his move now to remove the idolatry. And we get the scene of this Catholic priest being beaten in a church with a decorative cross that's then stolen. Uh, and Edward also announces that the Book of Common Prayer is going to be printed and issued to every parish. Now, what this book is, is sort of a formula for running a service in church. It was published in 1549, and while we have some pretty great recreations and close reimaginings, I don't actually think any original 1549 books are in existence. However, we know that this was meant to replace some more of the Latin language, provide morning and evening prayers, communion service outlines, psalms and lessons. Uh, essentially, it was meant to be the only text used across England for church services. This particular text was used for the next three years before it was revised in 1552. Well, 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 Henry Gray is back and he's turning out to be kind of a court gossip and he's suggesting, you know, Catherine Parr's presence at court means that she's not actually sick from her pregnancy. So there must be another reason that Elizabeth is not at court and Somerset is not having it because a rumor like that doesn't just damage Catherine and Thomas and Elizabeth, but it would absolutely also uh, injure or threaten Edward Seymour, Lord Somerset, um, and his power. So threatening the Lord Protector's power is intolerable. And I think I finally figured out who Henry Gray reminds me of. Tell me if you see it. It's the villain from Ever After. You know, with Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston. He's like the smarmy guy. Um, I had to look him up. Pierre Le Pew, right? He's got the earring and the mustache. Um, like if that guy talked about everyone in his friend group, he'd be Henry Gray. I'm so over this guy. Um, I did also try to find out if Henry Gray really abused Jane. And I did find a primary source where Jane talked about her parents being very critical of her, sometimes pinching her or hitting her. But even in her own account, she sounds more like she's annoyed by her parents um, rather than scared of them. So I'm not totally sold on the dramatization we've been given. But for creative purposes, it serves to make us really hate Henry, Henry Le Pew. So perhaps um, also we can see how different Jane's life is as a ward of Thomas Seymour, who she eventually describes as loving and as a father figure. Listener Terry says she is finding this portrayal of Jane to be very sympathetic and that she's starting to sort of pity Jane. We do get a beautiful, tender scene between Jane and Thomas. You know, she's unsure of her future. Um, she's asking if her purpose to be married to the king has been forgotten. 
And after some very refreshing feminist talk from Thomas, he reminds Jane of her worth and that she has many uses beyond her marriage match. And the reason I say feminist talk is because, like, no one would have talked the way the dialogue of this scene went. But we know that the showrunner is striking a really delicate balance of old and new language, which makes conversations very palatable, very easy to understand, but it doesn't quite give up on those elements of language patterns that we know and love from this period. Um, so that was a tangent. All of this to say, Henry Le Pew is tiresome. Um, other people who are tired is Catherine Parr. She's very tired. She's tired of her husband. She's sort of soured on him in the aftermath of this alleged affair. The veil has been lifted, right? She's feeling foolish and resentful. And she's sad that she's lost Elizabeth, who she loved as a child. And she points out, you know, she gets some digs in at Thomas. She says, you're only useful now to a child king and a pregnant woman. Um, and she deserves it. She deserves to say those things in the context of the world this show has built. She deserves to be resentful and angry. Um, and we'll come back to Catherine in a moment. For those of you who harbor a great love of animals, I am very sorry. You are likely surprised by this um, courtly cockfight scene that we are given. And in honor of listener Laura, I will say this cockfight makes for a fantastic innuendo. I laughed alone in my house like a psycho when I kind of made that connection. But we love a metaphor. That's what we're here for. Give us more of this, please. Um, at least you didn't really show much of the violence. Uh, but the sound effects were kind of gross. This pastime is, of course, a reality. Some other court entertainments included hunting, falconing, bear baiting. That was a new one for me. Uh, and Elizabeth herself was known to be a fan of those uh, pastimes. And she believed that enjoying those displays was a right, not just for herself, but for her people. So back to this scene Princess Mary and King Edward are enjoying this fight, and then we learn an important detail about Knight Pedro and why he remains at Mary's side. It turns out he is in the employ of Somerset as a spy. Kudos to you if you guessed that. I was trying to really figure out why he was there, why he kept showing up, and I was just kind of rolling with it. But it turns out there's a purpose. He is spying on Mary. But it's tough because we know he shares some of her views. And then he questions Somerset about why he's raiding Catholic churches. And he accuses Somerset of being self-serving and almost considering himself to be a king. And this is not a light charge at all, especially after last week when Somerset yelled at King Edward that he wasn't ready to rule and that the king needed to learn from himself, Somerset, and the others on the council. Pedro basically is accusing Somerset in this moment of treason against both the king and God. Foreshadowing? Dun, dun, dun. 
Okay, Henry Le Pew continues his gossip campaign at court, and he's so bold, he has the nerve to call Elizabeth the whore's daughter, and then suggest that he'd be well within reason to call Elizabeth a whore as well. And I'm going to tell you, that did not sit well with Robert Dudley. He was not having it. And then he almost assaults Henry in public and is stopped only by his father. Because since Robert is of lower status, it's suggested that had he actually landed a punch, he would have lost his hand as punishment. And I'm still team Robert. Hand or no hand, we stand. There aren't teams, actually, but if there were, Lori M. and I are the official founding members of his fan team. Oh, it's a good merch idea. Rebecca, we need Team Robert pins. (sighs) I love him. I love him. Okay, but then his father does accuse Robert of maybe having feelings for Elizabeth. And so Robert's like, no, I don't. And he storms out, which is so dramatic. Um, You know, I love it. So then he goes straight to Elizabeth, which if you're going to prove someone wrong, probably don't go to the person you've been accused of liking. So he goes straight to Elizabeth. He presents himself as a friend. He wants to lift her spirits. He wants to come see her. You guys, I loved this scene with them trying to make the grass whistle. Now, I'm from the South. You may have noticed And we do that here. It's a really fun pastime to whistle with the blades of grass. You know, you have to hold it just right. Sometimes you have to like tear it in different places to get different tones. Um, But I've actually never, ever heard of this practice from anywhere else in the world. Like I know people do it, but I've just never thought of it. So um, this is unrelated. But if you've played this game, come tell me on Twitter Tell me where you're from, too. It's so nostalgic to me, but I've never heard anyone talk about it. Anyway, as far as Robert's concerned, Elizabeth has once again kind of confirmed these rumors about her. And I think he's kind of personally disappointed. But I also think he is looking at the big picture, her reputation, her safety, her social standing. Now they're all at risk. You know, and when he leaves, he sort of curses under his breath. Like this is a low moment for him. This is really disappointing for him. Now, thankfully, the show tells us that Elizabeth is not pregnant, but I would like to accuse, j'accuse, Kat Ashley of being a Catholic because she will not let Elizabeth let go of this guilt. It is a Catholic tale as old as time. Sheesh, like ease up, cat. Calm down. Um, now, with each new episode, I like Pedro, night slash spy Pedro, more and more. But Mary, Mary has got to learn this lesson. Basically, Pedro takes her to this priest who was robbed earlier in the episode. And Mary tells this poor man, you know, God sees your suffering like, oh, sorry, you lost your eye and all your money. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. And then Pedro comes up to her and he's like, um, 
Catholics don't need recognition. They need an advocate. And so he's encouraging Mary into an active role yet again, telling her she has Catholic respect and she's needed by the people. But the best line is when he tells her, quote, you are the only player in this game worrying about the rules. You can't tell me that would not be a killer tagline for when Romola gets her own Queen Mary series. I'm not saying she is. I don't know anything about the inner workings of stars, uh, but that would be amazing. And you know what, you guys? I really felt that line. I know Pedro isn't talking to me personally, but I took that as a message I needed to hear. And maybe you did too. It's a fascinating pattern built here in the show, the idea that everything's a game, everyone's a player, you can use different players, um, some people lie, and then some people, they're going to lose if they're not willing to cheat. So anyway, I'm giving Pedro some snaps this week because he delivered the best line of the episode. Um, we have this like strange scene where Thomas goes for a swim in the river and it's not really an important scene, but, um, it does make me wonder when they filmed this scene. I just hope it wasn't so cold. I used to work on a show that filmed in Chicago and they would shoot any season, um, any scene at any time. And there was one year that they did a ton of spring and summer scenes, but they shot them all in November, like outside. So everyone was freezing dressed for summer, but outside in November. Um, so to hide the fog from their breath, the actors had to drink this like frozen, almost frozen water bottle all day to sort of equalize their breath with the cold of the air. Um, I'm not going anywhere with this, but just never trust that these actors got to film on a comfortable day. This could have been absolutely freezing, uh, but I hope not. They're suffering for their art. We appreciate it. Okay, at last, the big moment comes and Catherine Parr delivers her baby. It's a baby girl. Uh, would have been born August 30th, 1548. And in real life, she was born at Sudley and not at Chelsea. And her name was Mary Seymour. Catherine and Thomas finally have sort of a reconciliation. And then he goes off to celebrate with drinks, you know, with his brother and some of the other council members. Henry Le Pew is there and ruins everything. Um, and then when Thomas returns home, he finds that Catherine has died. She's been laid out and he is just devastated. And the suddenness of this is so sad. Um, if you're a fan of this period of history, this was not unexpected. But still, I think it was done in a way that leaves their romance at peace. They had their reconciliation. Uh, Catherine Parr died on September 5th, 1548 at Sudley Castle. Um, as I know, the story is that Thomas made it to her side 
and crawled into the bed and held her as she passed. And this is another clue to us that he loved her very deeply in reality. I think this may have been one of the great love stories of this period, uh, but because we get this narrative around Thomas, um, you know, we kind of sweep this under the rug. I would have actually really liked to have seen that played out on camera here. I think many of you, and I agree, thought that Catherine's death wasn't given the weight or the attention that she deserved. It, it sort of felt like someone said, okay, we have to keep moving. So just do a shot of her laid out and we'll keep going. It was a little bit sad. In the series, Catherine then um, leaves Chelsea Place to Elizabeth along with her money. And Elizabeth is shocked like a bucket of cold water. Now she's old enough to live by herself in her own household and command herself as she pleases. This is sort of her moment of release from the care of others. She's not going to go live with anyone. She is now going to live in her own home. Listener Maria made this point as well. This is just a series that we've needed in Tudor canon because it's making me realize how much I have never considered Elizabeth as a young woman. These gradual steps towards independence and autonomy, it's so refreshing to watch. Now, in reality, I tried to look and see what really happened with Chelsea Place, and I'm seeing I think it likely would have remained with Thomas Seymour, who obviously in real life at this time is living at Sudley. I don't see anything in the record of Elizabeth inheriting this manor. If anything, it would have maybe even gone back to to the crown if Thomas hadn't wanted it or had been unable to keep it. I'll keep an eye out for more on that, but I'm just not seeing a real life move for Elizabeth back into Chelsea. But let's go back to Thomas. He and his things are being cleared out of the house. I can't imagine losing your wife one day and your home the next. You know, we often say this about women and so rarely about men. It's a dynamic um, that usually plays out the opposite way. Uh, for genders here, uh, but it's a refreshing spin on this narrative. And then the two Seymour brothers sit together. And surprisingly, I didn't know it. Did you know? Somerset actually has a heart. Mind blowing. So listeners, Fair Fair and Terry really appreciated this scene between the brothers. And I did too. I've been feeling like Somerset is kind of a cold man. But then here he was offering his brother some comfort around, you know, dark thoughts, self-blame. He's even tying in the way Catherine looked after giving birth and pulling it back to this memory of their sister Jane, who passed away very similarly after giving birth to Edward, now King Edward. And it was maybe the most human moment we've seen for Edward, for Somerset. But I think it captured simply and elegantly the process of grief. Grief can sort of temporarily mend splits, 
remind us our experiences are shared. And I think trips down memory lane are absolutely an appropriate approach to moments like this. Um, I just really loved this scene. These characters have a lot of depth, and I so appreciate that about this writing and the acting. Um, Finally, as Elizabeth arrives to a new empty Chelsea Manor, she sort of moves through her new rooms and ultimately finds a drawer full of her letters that she had written to Catherine Parr. All of them have been read, and Thomas has left them behind for her to find. I think, personally, it would be a bit difficult to move into the rooms of a person you've just lost, but I do understand this was sort of the way. You know I'm not convinced that this actually happened in real life, though. Um, But in the series, I think in this moment, as she's walking through, as she's taking ownership, as she is acclimating to the space and who she is in it, I think they've made her look a little bit older. She carried herself with composure as she returned to a place that she was banished from. So she looks ready to take over. And then she returns to court and rededicates herself as a servant to the king, her brother. A scene that listener Nancy said she liked because it showed even at such a young age, Elizabeth really understood at least enough of certain parts of court games to know how to dedicate herself and honor a king. And then she, of course, um, Seymour Thomas is there um, and she tells him off. She has this great, you know, declarative moment where she tells him her new priorities and how much she's grown up. And then he leans forward and has the absolute audacity to propose in front of everyone. Treason is fun, y'all. Listen, um, Lori Ann says that if she were Elizabeth, and I'm with you here on this, Lori Ann, she would turn around and punch him. <laughs> and I really wish that had happened. I really do. Um, but geez, I can hardly keep up with the back and forth of this um, couple that never was. Uh, But it's a great line delivery by Cullen in that moment. Again, some comedic timing with the music. And then Elizabeth has a great flash. She's unsure again of what she wants. But I do think she will decide very soon. I think it's a good place to leave her with this episode. Oh my goodness. How did all that happen in just an hour of television? If you are someone who has asked about costume choices and period-appropriate props and sets, I have not forgotten you. Uh, I can admit, though, when I'm not the expert. So I want to track down the most correct answers for you. So stay tuned to hear what I find out. Definitely don't stop asking about things. Um, I know that I leave you all with a lot to process this week, but thankfully... We have a few days before the next big episode. I will see you there, same time, same place, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.